Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, I thank you so much for uh, the promise this morning that you are with us. Uh, you're with us during seasons of celebration. You are uh, with us through times of trial. And we give you thanks, Lord, for your presence. Uh, Lord, thank you for your strong and steady hand that leads and guides us. I uh, thank you as the psalmist writes that our times are in your hands and that you can be trusted. Uh, God, we love you. We thank you so much for loving us first. Uh, we pray as we open up your word today that you would speak to us through and by the power of your spirit, that you would form and shape us into the people that you have called us to be. Uh, God, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Uh, you may have a seat. Christ Point, how are you doing this morning? Wonderful. It's good to see you. Last week, if you were able to stay after the service, you uh, heard about some exciting news as Christ Point uh, prayerfully moves forward uh, to break ground on a new facility. Uh, hopefully, you were able to stay last week. If you weren't, again, we're going to be sharing uh, following the service this morning. You can hear about our next steps as a church. Uh, if you were unable to stay last week, one of the things that I shared, and I quote, is, while we have no reason to believe we won't be able to stay here at the barn for the foreseeable future, we also know things can change dramatically when circumstances demand uh, and we want to be ready. Uh, you may also know that last week uh, we opened up God's Word to James chapter 4 and read the following verses. Come now, you who say, tomorrow or today or tomorrow, we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. On Wednesday of this week, Donnie called me uh, to share with me that Charlotte Mecklenburg County has requested uh, that we leave the barn by the middle of December. I asked if that was December of 2023 or 2024. Apparently, uh, they want us out this middle of December. And so uh, with that in mind, over the course of the last few days, we have put together an amazing transition team uh, that will lead us as we look for a more permanent place while, Lord willing, the building is being uh, built. Um, I know oftentimes one of the ways that God works is that he leads his people to go, hey, have you thought about, or I know someone who, or have you considered, uh, if that's you this morning, church family, and you have thoughts or ideas, please be more than willing uh, to share them uh, with us. We are available. Uh, if I could, I want to share with you just a little bit about my initial thoughts upon receiving that news, and then we'll jump in uh, to our text in James chapter 5 this morning. These are just a few of the things that I, I scratched down. Uh, number one, in the Christian life, it's okay to be disappointed. It's okay to be disappointed. I think, you know, for, for some reason, sometimes when we feel or experience disappointment of, as followers of Jesus, we think that we should immediately cast those feelings aside and that somehow it's wrong uh, to be bummed. You've probably lived enough life uh, to have been disappointed in something, right? You, you've experienced life in such a way where not everything goes as planned. 
Um, it's okay when that occurs to be disappointed. I laugh. There's part of me, if, if, you know, if I were to sort of write this story, I had this idea that, you know, that the church family would be generous and we'd uh, raise funds and we'd break ground early next year and 12 to 18 months after that, the building would be completed. Everyone would show up at the barn one Sunday and I would be like, pick up your mob chairs and bring them over to our building. Like we're, you know, we're settling over there. Like in my mind, that's uh, how it was going to play out. But uh, apparently it's not going to play out quite that way. And so it's okay to be disappointed um, and it's okay to sit in it for a second, right, and, and more than a second, right, to go, oh, that's kind of a bummer. So if you're here this morning, you hear that, and you're like, I loved meeting in a Cracker Barrel. Why do we have to move? Like, that's such a bummer. Um, it's, it's okay. I, I get it. Uh, secondly, um, I was just reminded that God is in control, and that's, um, that's very good news. Oh, man, is that good news. Um, God is not caught off guard or surprised. He never receives an unexpected phone call. What is breaking news to us is not breaking news to him. And he doesn't sit idly by in the heavens and watch as life just happens and transpires. He is intimately involved. He is sovereign. He is in control. And he is good. Uh, And that's just the very best news on the planet. Um, Third, uh, God has a track record of faithfulness that we as a church have experienced over the years. Fifteen years ago, we were meeting in Highland Creek Elementary School. Uh, We found out suddenly that they were going to double our rent in just a few weeks. We didn't have resources for them to double our rent in just a few weeks, and so uh, we drove over to the West Cabarrus Y. I think it was a Monday morning. Uh, Brian Goins and myself walked in, and we walked up to the front desk, and we said, hey, you don't happen to have any space here on Sunday morning. And they said, well, uh, we had a church meeting here, but yesterday was their last day. And we spent nearly 10 years there. Uh, when, and it came time to move from the Y. We found a great place in Cox Mill High School, and we moved in, and we're like, man, this is, this is great. This is an amazing space. And it was until one Thursday afternoon when Seth, who was sitting over there, who I still hold responsible for this, called me and said, James, there's a worldwide pandemic, and they're shutting down the schools, and we can no longer meet there. And I was like, well, that's kind of a bummer. Uh, Brandon Lindsay, part of our church family, who was here doing announcements this morning, said, hey, I know a guy. And uh, he got us in touch with Donnie, and Donnie said, hey, you can, you can meet here for a Sunday, and we'll see how it goes. But I ain't signing nothing. That's what he said. And uh, two years later, uh, here we are. And so I, I see how, how God has has moved us and his hand has guided us through the years and I'm just kind of blown away. And so there's this part of me in an odd sort of way where I'm like, how cool is it that we get to be a part of this little adventure that God has us on? I was walking up to uh, the land last week with Judy and uh, Judy was saying, James, do we have financing for the, for the building project? And I said, yes, there's, you know, there's two institutions that have kind of given us the, you know, the thumbs up. And I made s- some comment. I don't even remember exactly what I said. But I said, boy, Judy, I, I honestly just sort of want to be there. Like, I kind of want to get to the end, but now. And, uh, and, sh- and she just kind of smiled. And she goes, yeah, she goes, James, but it's funny. Oftentimes, that's not how God works. That's not how he builds faith in us. And uh, here's Judy, you know, <laughs> doing, doing Judy things and saying what's true. And I just was reminded, yeah, that's how God grows faith in his people. 
Like he lights our path usually to about there and we, we take a step and, and then he lights it a little more and we take a step. And, and God leads us in God. He provides manna for the day. He's, he's done this historically. And so just as a, as a people, as a people of faith, we, we walk by faith. Um, and, and what an adventure that we get to be a part of. I'm so grateful for that. And that's kind of my last thought or that, that feeling that I had in that moment is I was so grateful to the Lord for allowing us to be here for the last two years. It was so sweet for us to be able to come back together two years ago when we started meeting again. I would have never, like, (laughs) I would have never planned this. They didn't talk about this in seminary. You know, they're not like, look for a barn if you don't have a place to meet. You know, I I show up at, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning, and there's farm animals running across the road, and I'm just going like, what in the, what in the world, Lord? And I see the kids playing outside, and I'm just exceedingly grateful. Like, how kind of God to give us this place and space for the last two years. And how exciting to think about where he's going to send us next. Uh, I can't wait to see. But I don't know where that is quite yet. And, uh, and he does. And so let's uh, pray together as a church family and ask for him to provide, um, to give us wisdom, and give us courage to go. And so let's pray right now. And if you would, just in the quietness of this moment, Um, You pray. You pray that God would lead and guide and that he'd open doors and we'd have the courage uh, to to walk through those. So let's do that now. Would you pray with me? God, we're incredibly grateful for the kindness that you've shown to us over the years. We are full of hope because we believe that your promises are true. Uh, we trust you. We, uh, we know that you've promised to build your church, and uh, we cling to those promises. Thank you, Lord, that uh, you invite us to be a part of what you're, you're doing, uh, both in our community and around the world. What a joy and great privilege it is to, to be a part of seeing your kingdom advance both here and in other places. Uh, Lord, thank you for the kindness that you've shown to us in allowing us to be here in this place for the last two years. What a gift that has been to us. I'm so grateful for the relationship that, uh, that, that we've built with uh, Tommy and with Donnie and with his family. How kind of you to, um, to establish and grow that relationship. How kind of you to, in, in your goodness, to, to see fruit from that, which is the six and a half acres just over my shoulder. Lord, you've, you've been incredibly kind. I never could have drawn that up. You did, and so we give you thanks. Uh, for the next place that you have for us, that time in between where we are today and where we will be, hopefully in just a couple of years, Lord, we ask for wisdom. We pray that you would open doors. We pray that you would make it so plain and clear to us uh, that, that we would go, well, of course, <laughs> that makes perfect sense. Uh, we don't always do that. Sometimes, for, just for me, I'm, you know, I'm slow, and so it, it, it takes an extra minute. And so I pray that you would make it obvious. 
uh, provide for us, encourage us. We're excited for what you have in store for us in the days ahead. God, we love you, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Welcome to the adventure. Uh, yesterday, it was 50 degrees in the morning. Did you feel it? Brandon mentioned it this morning. After a hot North Carolina summer, when it's 50 degrees in the morning, it might as well be freezing. I went upstairs and I looked into my closet and I started looking at all my flannels, my puffy vest. I was like, oh, it's coming. It's right around the corner. It's coming. I love when the seasons change. But I got to be honest with you, one of the things that I struggle with is, is the winter weather warnings that, that you come across when you're watching television or looking online, looking at the weather um, particularly in the South. I'm not a Southerner by birth. You know, I'm kind of adopted into the family. I'm from Michigan where it actually snows. And so I still snicker a little bit when I turn on the television screen and I see warnings all over about the snowfall that is expected in the Queen City. I mean, people around me by Seemingly, the hundreds of thousands are rushing to Harris Teeter to get that last loaf of bread, eggs, and milk, even though you and I both know it's going to snow about a sixteenth of an inch, and by the afternoon, it's going to be 58 degrees and sunny. It doesn't matter. We prepare for the worst. The problem is, is when I hear about those severe weather warnings on television, I've kind of gotten to the point where I just dismiss them. I'm going, this is, come on, this is not, you know, it's, it's not going to happen. You know, everyone's like, get your sleds outside, find those gloves, get your boots out. And I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. It's not going to happen. Uh, I found in life that oftentimes I treat warnings in the Bible uh, much like I treat weather warnings that I come across on the television screen. I mean, I go, maybe? But I probably don't need to change anything. I'm not going to change the way that I live or function or move about the cabin. It's probably not going to play out that way. Uh, and yet, uh, when we, when you, when me, when we come across warnings in Scripture to treat them uh, that way is the dictionary definition of biblical foolishness. And so this morning, we come across a biblical warning. Uh, this particular warning in James chapter 5, the audience is uh, unbelieving, wealthy landowners. Right? Unbelieving, wealthy landowners. I say that because as we read the passage this morning, it's going to sound very familiar uh, to someone who might, may have read the Old Testament prophets before. Right? It, it, the way that James couches his words here um, you can read it and go, okay, I don't think he's talking to the believing church here. I think James is talking to a group of people maybe outside of the church, but they're living a certain way. And so why would James do that? The book of James, we said, is written to the church. It's written to, to God's people, people who know and follow Jesus and have trusted in him. And so why would he give this warning to unbelievers in James chapter 5? I think he does it for a couple of different reasons. Uh, one is he wants to remind uh, the, the poor within the church who are being oppressed by the rich and feel like they're forgotten, he wants to remind them that God is just. 
Right, so put yourself in their shoes for, for just a minute. If you're poor, if you're not in a position of power, if you see people abusing their power over you, and you're kind of sitting here going, well, this isn't right, this isn't fair, like, hello, somebody notice. And, and James is writing to the church and going, God notices. Like, he sees you're not forgotten. So I think, I think on one hand, he's encouraging the church to be reminded that God is just. But secondly, I think... Um, I think we can read James chapter 5, and even though the church isn't necessarily the original audience, we can still learn from the truth that James is saying or speaking uh, to these unbelieving rich landowners. And so I want us to do that this morning. I want us to take those two ideas. I want us to come to James chapter 5, and I want us to consider uh, the words of warning that James gives to the church in James chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. If you have your Bibles, turn there. If you don't have uh, your Bibles, you can follow along on the screen. Uh, scripture says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fatted your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. Right, so it's clear here that this is a warning to the rich. We learn as we read the passage, it's a warning to unbelieving rich landowners. There are dangers, I think, when we read a passage in the Bible that speaks of wealth or riches. I think we can err on one end of the spectrum. Both are dangerous. One is to read a passage in Scripture about wealth or about money and automatically assume that, uh, that wealth or money... Uh, equals unrighteousness. Like sometimes we can do that. Sometimes we can um, assume that if someone is affluent or has resources, that, that they're the bad guy or, or the bad gal. And, and we equate money or resources with what is wrong or what is evil in uh, the world. We end up fighting class warfare. That, that's an issue... Uh, in the Bible, because Scripture talks about godly people who knew the Lord, who had financial means. Uh, we, we think of Abraham or Job or David or Josiah, Philemon, and Lydia as examples in Scripture. The Bible teaches us that, uh, that money is not the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And so the focus here that James gives is on those who gain their wealth in an ungodly manner and make it the center of their lives and fail to use it as a resource or as a way to benefit others. So that's, that's one issue, assuming that rich equals unrighteous. Uh, the other issue, and the one that, that, quite honestly, I would argue Scripture gives greater emphasis to is, is just simply the, the danger of wealth or riches, the danger of wealth and riches. 
Um, sometimes we, sometimes I, function like wealth, like money, is an advantage when in all actuality, Scripture teaches us that it might be a spiritual disadvantage. Uh, the great theologian Charles Barclay once said, I've been rich and I've been poor, it's more fun to be rich. It may be, but apparently it's also more dangerous. Uh, Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount, no one can serve two masters, either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus said, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. After that parable, he stated, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. When a rich young ruler came to Jesus and was told that he must sell all to inherit eternal life, Scripture says that he went away sad because he was a man of great wealth. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible but not with God. All things are possible with God. There are, there are plenty of places that we can go to in Scripture and in the Bible that at the very least give a warning to the dangers of wealth and riches. So I, I think it's wise for us to, to take heed to consider those passages. And, and the reason being is because statistically, particularly on a global level, uh, we, like you and me, uh, we are rich. I know sometimes it's easy to sort of have a category in our minds. We look at the world we know it, and maybe we look at others and we go, well, he, <laughs> that Jeff character that figured out the two-day shipping, he's rich. Right? Bill, you know, with the computers. <laughs> Elon. With the cars, that guy's rich. But you just look at the numbers globally, and you and me, like we're, we are like crazy wealthy. We're like crazy wealthy. I think if you make $25,000 a year, you're the top 1% to 2% in the world. If you make $50,000 a year, you're the top 1%. I mean, it, and so I, I mean, I just say that, and I go, okay, when I read these passages, I just want to... I just want to, I want to pause and go, okay, this is, like, if we're looking for categories, we're, we're probably in that category. Kent Hughes, in his, in his book on James, writes, Material possessions tend to focus one's thoughts and interest on the world only. only. Uh, wealth gradually enslaves those who are attached to it and perverts their values. The more we have, the easier it is to be possessed by our possessions, comforts, and recreations. Jesus says, in the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth and the desire for other things come in and choke the word. Most tragic of all, as with the rich young ruler, wealth can steal one against the objective requirement for entering the kingdom. That is, when your hands are full, 
It is difficult to say, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. So James gives a warning to these landowners, to people that quite honestly society might look at and go, man, they've got it made. And, and James writes and says, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Uh, why the warning? Why does James give this warning? Well, he tells us in verses 2 and 3, Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. Like, hello. I'm not going to read that on a coffee mug. James says to the church, riches are temporal. Riches are temporal. So hoarding wealth is foolish. Riches are temporal. So hoarding, acquiring, accumulating wealth is foolish. In the agrarian ancient world, there were three standards for the source of one's wealth, three things that people would look at. Oftentimes, they would look at harvested grain, they would look at someone's crop, they would look at clothing, and they would look at precious metals or jewels. James addresses each one of them here. Right? Your riches have rotted. Once was what was once seemingly valuable has gone to waste. In other words, your portfolio has been wiped out. Your nest egg has left you with egg on your face. Your rainy day fund has been washed away. Lesson here is that treasure is temporary. Treasure is temporary. The things that some look to for their source of hope or security does not last. James continues, your garments are moth-eaten. We see this image in the Bible. Clothing was a sign of one's wealth or affluence. Clothing communicated affluence or status. Um, it's, it's not a whole lot different today than it was then. Certain brands or certain kinds of clothing can communicate something to a watching world. Nike is seen as cooler than BCG. I mean, it just is. Like, you, typically the kids don't go to school on Monday and go, where did you get that? It's like, name brand for Academy Sports. You're rocking it. No, but if you, I mean, if you, have, if you have some Nikes, like, it just, it's just cool. And I'm, I mean, I, you know, I don't know if you can see them or not, but. Ralph Lauren is held in high regard. U.S. Polo Association, J.C. Penney. Not as much. Calvin Klein. I mean, that's, that's cool. Kmart. Yeah. James tells the, the rich landowners, those who, who may flaunt their appearance or their dress, and he's going, hey, the, like the thing that you perceive to be incredibly valuable, it's, it's destroyed. It's moth-eaten. In other words, it just doesn't last. James continues, your gold and your silver have corroded. James uses language of wisdom literature to emphasize that even the thing that we think won't corrode will corrode. He's, he's just saying it's just temporal. The, the one thing that you thought would be reliable uh, will fade. My goods 
are no longer good. The things that I thought would bring status or security or significance bring none. What I thought would last forever will betray me in the end. Another way of saying it is that your assets will become liabilities. This is what he says to the wealthy landowners. Your assets will become liabilities. Your gold, this is verse 3, your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you. Isn't that amazing? Like the thing that you look to where you're like, yeah. James says that's going to be evidence against you. Your assets will become liabilities. They will not last. It reminds me of the parable found in Luke chapter 20. Jesus told the crowd a parable, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods stored up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Riches are temporal, and it's foolish to store up won't, what won't last. James wrote and said, you have laid up treasure in the last days. Admit, I, admittedly, I read this and I go, well, is, I mean, isn't there some sort of balance? Isn't it wise to, I mean, to save and have a rainy day fund and kind of do the, maybe do the Dave Ramsey thing and you know, have cash on hand and you know, think about the future? I mean, I don't, like, I don't know if you've ever been to a financial planner's office before, but, I mean, you can kind of sit down and they put, you know, the numbers on the screen and they're like, you know, if, I mean, you can retire at 65 right here and then, you know, you're good, 65, you're good, 66, you're good. You're going to run out of money first quarter, 67, and so you want to, you want to, you know, you want to maybe give more or think about doing things different. Like, you don't want to hear that, right? You want to hear, like, listen, I, I mean, here are the numbers, I mean, if you, you live to 98, you're going to start, you know, cutting into some of this. And uh, you might want to make it to, a, like, that's what you want to hear. And so, I, you know, I, I read, you, you laid up treasure in your last days. And I go, well, isn't it, isn't it wise to say? Proverbs 21.20 says, the wise store up choice food and olive oil, but fools gulp theirs down. And scri- scripture doesn't teach that it's unwise to save or that, that we, sh- we shouldn't think about the future. You know, we talked last week about the, the benefits and the wisdom and planning. Scripture's not teaching that. But, but, but I think James here is rebuking a group of people who are living their lives in such a way where they're trying to acquire things to essentially just take with them to have as a source of security or as a sign of success. This is like having two sets of gloves while driving through the Rockies and not telling your friend until after his hands are frozen. Like, you had two sets. Like you, what? It's like having a full refrigerator while your neighbor has an empty stomach. This is a picture of someone who spent their days acquiring at their own peril. Uh, so what's the issue? What's the issue here? Well, well James gives us clarity in, in verses 4 and in, f- in verse 4 and 5, he says, Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, 
are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. James is saying to these wealthy uh, landowners, your fraud will be found out. Like you're going to be exposed. Like you, you may think that you've worked things a certain way now where you're getting away with how you're operating or how you're living, but it won't last long. Uh, the Old Testament is, is clear in warnings toward those who abuse their power and lord it over others, defrauding workers. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 14 says, Do not take advantage of a hired man who is poor and needy, whether he is a brother Israelite or an alien living in one of your towns. Pay him his wages each day before sunset, because he is poor and is counting on it. Otherwise, he may cry to the Lord against you, and you will be guilty of sin. Leviticus 19.13, do not defraud your neighbor or rob him. Do not hold back the wages of a hired man overnight. Proverbs 3.27, do not withhold good from those who deserve it when it is in your power to act. Do not say to your neighbor, come back later and I'll give it to you tomorrow when you have it with you. And nevertheless, these, these rich landowners were holding back the wages from their workers. And this was an issue for a couple of reasons. One, poverty-stricken workers were living hand-to-mouth. Right? A day without wages was a day without food. Right? So they, I mean, they couldn't get paid on the 1st and the 15th. They were thinking about survival. They needed food for the day. And so when their boss was like, yeah, I'm good for it, man. I'll hit you up tomorrow. He was putting that worker in a situation where they couldn't eat. Second, the owners were doing it at harvest time when their barns were full and the, the wine red in the press. Like In other words, they had the resources to actually pay the workers. It wasn't this thing where they were like moving money and they're going, well, this, man, if this guy pays me, it should, it should be in the mail by Thursday. I'll get it into the bank by Friday. I'll get it cashed. I'll get you the money on Saturday or Monday at the latest. Like they had full pockets and they weren't paying the workers. And so James is calling them out. The prophetic cry is against any person or nation who reaps riches at the expense of the poor. James continues, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. He writes to these people and essentially says, just because you can doesn't mean that you should. This, by the way, I think is good for us, for you and for me to sort of tuck away, even as followers of Jesus. And just because we can doesn't mean that we should. I remember the first time that I fell in love with the Cheesecake Factory. There was one in Dallas when I was in seminary, and when I found it, it was, it was love at first taste. I don't care that their menu is 127 pages long. I don't care that you have to arrive at lunch in order to have dinner as you work your way through each and every page of the menu. Uh, when I tasted the cheesecake, I was like, count me in. And so I would go there uh, more than I should. Uh, when you're a seminary student, going to places like Cheesecake Factory should be a special treat. 
maybe a once-a-year thing that you do when family's in town and you know they're picking up the tab. Uh, I did not operate quite that way, and so I, I kind of was like, like Norman Shears. I mean, I would show up, and they'd be, oh, James is back. He's back. And, uh, and I love the Cheesecake Factory. When I graduated from seminary, my family came to celebrate in the big day. My grandmother, who was living at the time, uh, came, and we took her to Cheesecake Factory uh, to eat. And she was there, and every time I looked up, my grandmother had a smile on her face, and she just would giggle. And I finally was like, Grandma, like, what's the deal? And you have to understand my grandmother. She was, th- like, she was, this, she was this tall, she was this tall. She loved the Lord, godly woman. And she said to me, James, this is just such a treat. And I just thought, yeah, yeah, it is. Like, it's, it's such a treat. And I've thought since that time, like, like maybe she was on to something. Like, to have those, those experiences where we go, that... But that's a, that's a treat. I, I think we operate, I think I sometimes operate where I just sort of want to position myself to be able to say yes to, th- to things. Like, well, yes, yeah, I can, I can do that. I can afford that. I can do that. Yes, 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 yes. And I wonder if there isn't wisdom uh, s- sometimes in, in thinking just because I can doesn't necessarily mean that I should. James isn't arguing that, like, we can't have fun, that we can't enjoy God's good created world. He's, he's not suggesting that we, we shouldn't experience God's common grace that he gives to us with great freedom and enjoy it as a gift uh, from God. Uh, but, but he is challenging people who are living life in such a way where they essentially are self-focused and they are thinking about, like, what do I want? This is the dictionary definition of it. You lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. Like you essentially thought about yourself and no one else. Recently, I came across a story of a guy who uh, purchased a home and he rents it out, Uh, which like financially, you know, I've, it seems to make sense to me. Like I'm not, a, I'm not a financial guru, but if someone were to say to me, James, you can buy a house that someone else pays for and it's yours, like I think that, like that makes financial sense to me. Uh, what doesn't make financial sense to me is what he did. And what he did was purchased a home and then rented it out to, uh, to some folks who couldn't afford it uh, monthly takes a financial hit. And so I look at the numbers and I go, hmm, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Now maybe you hear that and you think, well, it must be nice to be able to float that kind of money that he's losing every month, but, it, but it's not that. Like, like he, he chose to, to live a certain way, like, w- like below his means, in order to free him to do this. Now, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not saying everyone should do that. Uh, but, but I can just tell you, when I hear stories like that, I go, okay, that's unusual. Because I don't think that way. Like, like 
I, I don't most of the time. And so that's, that's challenging to me. James continues and essentially tells this group, while others are hurting, uh, you're helping yourself. You have fattened your hearts, he writes, in a day of slaughter. James's reference to luxurious living is, a very dis- is very descriptive in its literal rendering. It means you have lived delicately, a soft and pampered life. His mention of self-indulgence, literally, you've taken your pleasure, evokes the wasteful living of the prodigal son, wanton self-indulgence. Like, hey, just sort of give me what's mine, and I'm going to go spend it. I'm going to do what I want to do. James continues and, and says to these wealthy, unbelieving landowners, you, you abuse the powerless. Like you're, you're in a position... You're in a position where you could help those around you, but, but instead you're taking advantage of people. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. You live for yourself. You, you take the best from others when they are at their worst. You get rich off the poverty of others, and the righteous can't protect themselves. So again, I, this, is in, this is important. The audience here that James writes to is, is unbelieving uh, landowners who are using their position to take advantage of people. Uh, and I think there's wisdom in, in looking at this, thinking about it, and going, okay, Lord, is there, is there wisdom in there for me? And I know I'm not necessarily the intended audience, but, it, but is there wisdom in here for me? And so these are questions that, I, that I've been asking myself this week. Uh, James, what, what do you uh, really believe will bring you ultimate joy, safety, satisfaction, and security? And when I ask myself that question, I'm not asking for the right answer. I know I'm supposed to say Jesus. I'm asking, like, the... the does that belief impact my decisions in the way that I live? Like, does it make any sort of difference? Or is it just the right answer on a multiple choice exam? So I'm asking that question. James, what, what do I really believe will bring me ultimate joy, safety, satisfaction, or security? Uh, second question, I, I find myself um, asking myself, when I say things like, it sure would be nice to be able to, like, have you ever done that before? Like, maybe it's, maybe it's late at night, early in the morning, the house is quiet, and you just have this thought, this random thought. Maybe, maybe you heard about an opportunity that someone else had, and you're like, oh, man, it sure would be nice to be able to. Like, I wonder how I complete that thought or that sentence. Like, I've asked myself, James, do you, do, do you ever dream about about answering that in such a way where someone else is the recipient to your answer and not you? Like, could I live life in such a way where I am more excited about what is outgoing than what is incoming? 
These are questions for me. Uh, Lastly, do I have the courage to ask not only can I, but should I, or to ask the question, is it necessary? Again, I mentioned this earlier. Sometimes I want to position myself, family, just to be able to, to say yes to things, to say yes to experiences, to say yes to opportunities. Yeah, like yes, 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 yes. And I think, I, mean, I want to be able to, I can, I can do that. I've looked at the numbers, I've crunched the numbers, I can do that. But, but I want to personally, more often, just ask the question, should I? And then ask the question, is it really necessary? Do I, ha- do I have to do it? Do I have to? These are, again, these are questions that I'm asking myself again. I'm not, <laughs> this is not the fun police talking. Like, you know, like, I don't want to let Pastor know we're going on vacation. Like, he's, he's going to judge. This is not that. This is not that. Uh, I think it's good to wrestle. Like, I think, it, I think it's just good to wrestle. And so I, I want us to be the kind of people who wrestle well um, and, and then respond. Uh, I want that uh, for me, and I want that for you. I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know what this looks like for you. I don't have those answers. There's no, I don't have, like, law. There's no steps here. I can't give you numbers or give you a thumbs up or thumbs down to decisions that you make personally or that you make as a family. That's not what I'm trying to do. Um, but, uh, but I want us to wrestle. Uh, and I just want us to live crazy, generous lives and invest in things that last forever. Uh, that's just a good way to live. It's a good way to live. Would you pray with me? Uh, Father God, thank you so much for your uh, living and active word. Thank you that you use it to form and shape us, to change us, use it to convict us, use it to confront us. Uh, You use it to encourage us, too. I pray that it would do all of those things today. Lord, areas in in my heart, in our hearts, where uh, we need to be confronted and convicted, I pray that you would would do so, um, just out of love. Um, Lord, for folks who need some freedom and and to be encouraged, uh, Lord, I pray that you would give that to them as as well. but, Lord, I just ask that your spirit would, would do what your spirit does. Um, Lord, I pray that in that you would be the one who is honored and glorified. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. Amen.